it was the Leeds women, although they'd come from Bradford and Hebden Bridge and Todmorden and all of those hotspots where lesbians resided. And so it was always a really great night. Occasionally, the men from the pub downstairs would say something like, you know, you, you would hear them when you went to the bathroom. Oh my God, John, have you seen? There's about 200 <laughs> women up there on their own. I'm Kathleen Stock. And I'm Julie Bindle. And this is the Lesbian Project podcast, all the sapphic traffic for anyone who wants a bit more lesbian in their life. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning, Julie. How are you? I'm okay. I'm um, back from my holiday, obviously. You can see my usual background. You look very tanned. Tanned because I actually got burned, even though I don't sunbathe. I mean, that's unjust. How? How? Because because honestly, I know this sounds a cliche, and it's probably deeply offensive, but a group of Germans took (laughs) my shade. (laughs) They didn't take my sunbed by putting their towels over it. They took your sunshade? Took my shade. So every morning I'd go down for a swim, and the sun was out bright, and there was always a little bit there that just below the deck where I could sit there and not be in the sun. Because I love the sun. I like looking at it. I don't like sitting in it. A load of Germans. But anyway. Well, yeah, Yeah. that's the wrong thing to say. I I like the sunshine. I Mm. love the sun being out. But then this coach party turned up. You couldn't make it up from this kind of resort where our friend Lucy Masood, who we had on the pod a few weeks ago, brilliant Lucy Masood, she likes chaving it up there. Anyone that doesn't know the word chav, you're bound to be offended by it. It is quite an offense. does know the word chav is bound to be offended by it. Never mind. Well, anyone that does know the word chav. But basically, she likes going to a place, a resort, where there's a bit of partying going on. I, of course, because I'm very old and boring, like going to a resort where there's just the view and a nice little beach bar. But all of Lucy Masood's lot turned up and they happened to be Germans and they took my shade. OK, well, that's that's a that's a scandal. Um, but anyway, I sometimes think if you get a burnt and then it fades, it, it does. It can go into a nice tan and you, no. you look very bronzed. Well, look, I, I'm actually very tired, but maybe the tan is obscuring that. But tell me what you've been up to this week. Well, I'm also quite tired. I was, uh, I mean, I'm tired all the time. It's a bit of a theme, really. But um, I went, I gave a talk uh, two nights ago to um, a new organisation called the Committee for Academic Freedom. They had a big launch due at the Royal Society of Arts, which is amazing, in the great room, surrounded by frescoes. Um, and I was the speaker. Um, and so it was a great night. There was actually a stunning number of um, sort of bigwigs there and journalists from across the political spectrum, like Guardian, New Statesman, Morningstar, Ooh. Telegraph. It was really quite impressive. Um, plus loads of academics and lawyers and things like that. So I had a nice time. Um, it went on quite late and uh, now it's back to normal. But what what's the gist? I mean, I know that we can watch your talk because it's up there mm. on YouTube or it's up there on their platform. But what mm. was the gist of, of what you said? Well, um, so this is the Committee for Academic Freedom and it's a new organisation that's... Um, founded by academics in order to fight the sort of creeping effects of um, 
unwitting authoritarianism, I would say unwitting, that's kind of the gist of what I said in universities. And so what I said in my talk was that there's this sort of conspiracy theory that's very popular amongst um, podcasters on the right and particularly American podcasters who say that universities are kind of being deliberately undermined from the inside uh, by cultural Marxists, the, you know, the spectre. It's like Reds Under the Bed. It's the new Reds Under right. the Bed. So you cultural get this Marxists from Joe Rogan type. Podcast. In the seminar room, yeah. And I said, in the case of the UK, I mean, I'm going to give away one of my jokes because I'm going to write this up for Unheard. But, um, you know, that would be to credit academics with far too many organisational skills uh, <laughs> because they just couldn't, literally couldn't do something that far-sighted. It was supposed to have sort of been set in place in the 60s, working its way through the institutions mm. um this program of undermining liberal values that's not what's going on really what's going on is that like various um governmental measures over the years and managerial um initiatives have un unwittingly produced a climate in which people are frightened to say what they think the main one being introduction of student fees in the uk which turned the students into customers made them them and their parents very demanding and also made universities terrified of losing their custom and therefore terrified of offending them and that's a big is an obvious byproduct but there are many others so that's the kind of thing I was talking about um so yeah well it's an interesting one because when I was at university I went to a an old polytechnic um as a mature student so in my late 20s and the what passed for political activism there, this was in North London, was trying to hound out this man who was a member of the British National Party, which is a far right racist party, who was not a leader, he was a member. I personally found his views repellent and mm -hmm. still do. He was a student there who had every right under a yeah. democracy to get a degree, which was in something really boring like business studies. And yeah, the main activism was hounding him on campus. Now I, you know, I understand people find him, his views repulsive, but it was very targeted towards this individual student. And it seemed to me ridiculous because there were all kinds of things going on that were hugely problematic politically mm. in the UK and elsewhere at that time. And it probably would have been better to maybe go after the bigger fish. Like, yeah. And the structures that produce those things. And it's the same, actually. So I'm saying that, you know, as kind of chill, chilled environment for free speech is one of the byproducts of student fees. But obviously there are lots of other byproducts um, in terms of inequality um, as well. And, uh, you know, hundreds of different effects of that major decision. And in a sense, the same point you've just made goes for activist academics that there's so many targets within the university setup that they could they could usefully mm. critique but they don't want to because mm -hmm. they're frightened of turning the spotlight on their own on themselves and their own employers so it's much easier to go after individuals and in institutions that seem to be saying the wrong thing mm -hmm. that's what they do and they call that um activism Mm. And it's, not, is it? it's just uh, score settling and witch hunting, basically, in most cases. Well, I'm looking forward to watching your speech. It sounds absolutely brilliant. And well, it's all right. It's not brilliant. Well, but... I'm sure it is absolutely brilliant. And the feedback has been great. Mm. Uh, I interviewed Camille Paglia about five years ago. Okay, she, 
So she, she's an academic. Oh, I love Camille. Camille Paglia. So she, and this is where we're going to leather. This is the start of our leathering. Yes, leathering, everybody. Come on, let's leather. <laughs> so Camille Paglia is, she's a lesbian, but she has a little bit of a different definition to the definition that we might have. And she, okay, how to describe Camille Paglia? Right. She has set her stall at being the most anti-Judith Butler academic on this planet. She is absolutely rabid. She's a, she, she teaches cultural studies. That's the only way that I can describe her because her, yeah, her body of work is huge, isn't it? She's deeply theoretical. So in some ways I'd say she's not that antithetical to Butler, but she comes to very different conclusions, obviously. Well, she does indeed. And I think our friend Suzanne Moore might have interviewed her some time back. Mm-hmm. I know that Julie Birchill, the controversial journalist, as she's usually um, described as, and who, in fact, a lot of people confuse with me and vice versa. Because yeah, you're not a controversial journalist in any sense. Yeah, whatevs. But anyway, she interviewed Camille Baglia and they ended up with this facts war. Now, listen, young people that are listening to or watching this pod faxes <laughs> were before emails and ran in conjunction with the beginning of emails and the internet mm-hmm. and they're these huge hulking machines where you could pass a piece of paper through and mm-hmm. magically um at the other end a piece of paper just came out of the machine that said <laughs> the words that it said on the side in a kind of anyway. printing and if you and woe betide you if you ever phoned a fax number by mistake <laughs> excruciating high-pitched kind of terrible noise that would make your eardrums burst I remember that and in fact businesses and banks and all the rest of it used to actually have the fax number Mm. um, on the bottom of their letterhead and it was the weirdest thing because the very first time I sent a fax I remember this it was from Bradford University when I was working there um, as a youngster I wondered why the piece of paper hadn't disappeared (laughs) you thought it was like yeah. teleportation like star trek <laughs> that's right and there were all kinds of fax horrors because you'd end up sending the wrong fax to the yeah, wrong yeah person. i also remember I, I think one of my first jobs or like work experience i had to send some faxes and i was i was like up all night worrying about it because i couldn't get the paper in in time and like you'd have yeah. to feed the paper in individually and if you missed a bit then god knows what would happen and yeah it was it was stressful. and once you pressed start or send and you had sent it to the wrong person. <laughs> you couldn't stop it. No, and no, actually, no. that was the facts where you were slagging that person off. And that actually did happen to me from Bradford University, where we were we were organising this big feminist conference. And I was sending this fax to my colleague to say, do not invite that woman to speak. She is a nightmare. And oh, I sent it to the no. woman herself, and she's a really famous feminist. You faxed that <laughs> to the wrong person. That's terrible. Mm. That's like a really... I mean, it's easy enough to email something to the wrong person, but to actually fax them. (laughs) I I didn't get I didn't get sat, but I was carpeted, as we say here in the UK. Anyway, look. Yeah, where are we? Right. So Camille Paglia. Yeah. And Julie Birchall. Look it up, listeners, please, because they had this hilarious fax battle where I think Camille Paglia ended up calling Julie Birchall. No, Julie ended up calling Camille something like an ugly old dyke or or something really offensive. Anyway, Camille just thought it was funny. But this this woman um, decided, Camille, that we should all worship the penis, 
that lesbians are ridiculous if they say that the penis isn't a superior body part. Uh, I mean, she Camille is queer. The young, she's got a sort of um, worship of the Greek uh, mm-hmm. adolescent boy form. She's got a lot of stuff about that in her. But... Yeah, well, as as did I mean, Jermaine Greer actually wrote a book about worshiping the boy. Mm. I don't know what to say about that, really. I mean, it's an aesthetic preference in her. I mean, it, mm. she's, but she's also connecting it to like a whole set of values, like, oh God, I can't remember now. Is it Apollonian or Dionysian? You know, it's something like that. She's, she's saying that there's a kind of, she's arguing for a certain vision of the West and, and mm-hmm. it's, um, and it's, uh, it's values and it's uh, intellectual commitments that she wants to safeguard. Mm-hmm. And she's very, she's, she's a massive turf. I mean, she's she's brilliant, which is how I ended up interviewing her because she's so rude and so superior and so lofty. And when I wrote to her and of course, we'd been daggers drawn on the so-called lesbian sex war um, Mm. because, you know, we we just massively differed in our view. She thought it was hilarious to joke about women not wanting to, you know, worship the penis. And I didn't actually particularly think that was helpful at the time. Anyway, look. (laughs) It was, it was, we were daggers drawn. And then I contacted her and she was, well, why should I talk to you? And I says, well, I'm going to be in Philadelphia where she was. Mm. And, you know, I've written this stuff and I've been in this trouble and I've been tired. And she just immediately called me and said, I love you. We'll meet, we'll have lunch. Great. Choice in the matter. And much drink was taken and we had a fantastic time. And she was hilariously funny. And she kept Mm. showing me videos of Judith Butler on her phone being hounded out of, I think, somewhere like Mexico, where these absolute nut jobs, these Christian fundamentalists, had decided that she was, as they would call it, a paedophile worshipper. And they were holding up signs with her, with Judith Butler's face, um, face mask on these signs, with like a cross through it, and saying, get out of town. And she was chased, her and her wife were chased to the airport, where they had to almost barricade themselves in. Camille thought this was absolutely hilarious. And I have to say, I mean, I understand why she thought it was funny. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, Butler's another issue. And actually, I'm about to review Butler's new book for Unheard um, in a couple of weeks' time when it comes out. And I'm I'm actually in it. I am an object of critique by the mighty Butler. Oh, um, excellent. I'm really pleased you are. But uh, yeah, well, it's me, as we've established, it's me the Vatican and Putin and J.K. Rowling <laughs> that are the main culprits for all this stuff. But I do think that within Butler's case, um, I mean, this is going to say sound deeply uncharitable. What the hell? Um, you know, being chased out of the airport by Christian fundamentalists probably was the best thing that happened to her for a while because it gives her an excuse for this narrative, this paranoid, this, well, mm. this narrative anyway, let's just say that like, there is this sinister anti-gender faction out there that hates her. Um, yeah. I mean, there is inside, there is an anti-gender faction in the sense that of uh, people that are very suspicious and bigoted about homosexuality um, and any kind of gender nonconformity. We do know that, but she likes to join it up with people like us as well to make this big overarching yes. conspiracy that we're all part of the same thing. And if you actually look up this baying mob, if, if you look at the film, of these people chasing her and what they're saying and what their signs say. I'm not sure they'd be very keen on you and I, Kathleen. Oh no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know. But um But she's too that... stupid. She is too stupid in my view to appreciate well, she's, that. She's in a comp- as we'll as I'm no doubt we'll discuss in my review, you know, she's just uh 
it's a good example of what happens when you isolate yourself from confounding evidence and have a bunch of yes people around you. A yes, I can't say yes men, obviously. Yes, they, thems around you. Um, <laughs> agree with what you say. Okay, now hang on a minute. Camille, we'll go back to Camille just briefly. Um, okay. Camille's a good example of what I was talking about in this talk. I, I was saying, basically, I was saying we, the university has kind of shed most of its eccentric, obstreperous, um, rude uh, teachers and mm -hmm. researchers. It's become very professionalised. You have to be able to use a PowerPoint and um, you have to be able to manage the electronic register. And most academics traditionally didn't have mm -hmm. those skills, but they had a whole bunch of other skills. And we've substituted one kind of academic for another. But Camille is a really good example of someone who's still in there, I think. Although she must, must. I mean, in America, she's gone forever. So maybe she's retired emeritus or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she's just so uniquely herself and provocative and brilliant as well. The writing is just so um, polemical and be beautifully done. So I have never heard anyone talk as fast or as much she could talk a glass eye to sleep and it's like a scattergun it's fast mm. fast 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 mm. and she is highly entertaining oh, I think we could try and get her on the pod that oh, would be good really... although I should I'd be terrified but yeah okay Camille if you ever hear this come on our podcast we'd love to have you okay now we were going to talk about something else that happened this week to someone else that we know. Um, so Helen Joyce, who is not a lesbian, but very, um, very big player in uh, UK gender critical doings. And she's works for Sex Matters. Um, she's a director, I think, of Sex Matters, which is this organization that's at the forefront of pushing back against um, government policies and, and other kinds of policy, um, which, confound sex and gender identity. Um, she also wrote this brilliant book called Trans. And she used to be finance editor at The Economist, um, although she's left there now to work full time for Sex Matters. She was very instrumental in my um, early uh, success, as it were, because she commissioned me to write a couple of things for The Economist on gender, um, which at the time no one else would do. So I'm grateful to her for that. And we She's a friend of ours, isn't she? Mm, she is. Anyway, you say what happened to her, because I actually caught up to this a bit late because I was preparing for my talk. Well, I hadn't seen it. Um, but I then heard from somebody, poor Helen, she's being hounded on social media. They are accusing her of watching child abuse imagery, or as they would have put it, you know, kiddie porn, The her critics, uh, a deeply offensive term, obviously, on a train. And... I thought, what on earth? What next? I mean, I know they've said things about you and I that just defy logic and belief, but I thought, what on earth has happened? And it turned out, of course, that Helen was simply on a train, sitting with colleagues, working with some something open, some fan fiction open that contained, according to them, some pornographic um, wording, some... You know, there was no imagery involved at all. There was, was no imagery whatsoever. It was a narrative. And this man, this trans activist, was sitting close by, had recognised her, had zoomed in on what he said was her large font. 
on her phone that she was reading. She had other documents open, which were sex matters documents, which is how this highly intelligent human being was able to put two and two together with looking mm. on the website, checking Helen's profile picture and the fact that she was in fact Helen Joyce from Sex Matters. And then continued to make allegations that she the was photo. watching. The yeah, that she, yeah, that she, that's right. Posted a photograph of her with a screen and the wording just visible on her screen with the allegation, the defamatory allegation, in my view, that not only was she watching, sorry, was she reading pornography, but she was also getting off on pornography. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. OK, I mean, there are layers and layers uh, to this madness that you could unpick. But the idea of a woman sitting on a train next to colleagues, with colleagues on a packed train, somehow getting off on reading some fan fiction with some line about thrusting or throbbing or whatever. I mean, we, we think we should explain to people that don't know what she was doing, because she was looking at, before. but I agree with you, but obviously, she was looking at um, fan fiction, Harry Potter fan fiction, which is this genre of kind of, um well i think the clues in the name basically uh, fans of harry potter go online write stories about the characters in harry potter quite a lot of them are sexual there's a whole i mean it's not just about harry potter there's fan fiction is an enormous phenomenon that has i think that the mainstream is largely ignored but i actually also came across when i used to teach about fiction in universities mm. one of my students did a, a thesis on Head canon, <laughs> which is a kind what? of fan fiction. It's got all these sort of genres and subgenres, um, and it's largely written by teenage girls. Um, right. uh, but anyway, so Helen was looking in and has has written several articles already mm -hmm. about fan fiction because there's this genre of shipping. Um, what's called shipping, <laughs> which is that's again another sort of technical bit of fan fiction jargon but basically you um imagine two characters two fictional characters together who were not in the book in the canon um together sexually or romantically but you imagine that they were so you mm. imagine Dumbledore and some other character mm. Hagrid <laughs> getting it on <laughs> it it's too early for this Kath it really is <laughs> anyway Helen's written about this and a lot of it is interesting with respect i mean it's interesting in its own right it's just interesting um because the internet has allowed people to in one sense be create creative but also these sort of shared created fantasies about fictional characters about ownership it's really mm. interesting theoretically and she's interested in it from the perspective of it kind of being a seedbed for a lot of the kind of gender madness because there is this phenomenon of teenage girls being obsessed with gay male love mm. and it's a very romanticized idea of gay male love quite often mm. um it's all about swooning and you know very boyish girlish boys really involved but you know it, it seems to be partly one of the factors feeding into girls identifying as boys at a certain stage of development I've heard her talk about this and and she's fascinating on it and that is of course yeah one yeah. of her interests makes sense it's totally, um, it, if if we had proper working universities, people would be all over this. Mm. Um, but of course, <laughs> we don't. 
in that respect. So there's probably a lot of stuff on fan fiction from a completely uncritical perspective, but there's lots of critique to be done there. And Helen's looking into it. So basically she was just looking at some Harry Potter fan fiction on her phone. And it had, I don't know if it had sexual content or not, because I haven't seen it. But so what? I mean, obviously, so what? Yeah, obviously. Uh, and and what, what's really, well, well there, there are, as I said, several layers to this. First of all, she was being watched and stalked and photographed without her knowledge yeah. or permission and yeah. then defamed. As I say, very, very defamatory in my view, uh, legally defamatory without question, where this, the content of her phone at that split second when the photograph was taken was posted up on social media with an explicit, in my view, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, objective to humiliate and to slur her in a way that was just horrendous, yeah. horrendous. And what she was doing was what many of us do, which is work on the train. Now, when I saw this, my, I mean, my first reaction was, this is hideous for Helen. And I could imagine how she felt. And the second was, oh my God, all those times that I've been working on the train <laughs> where I have had, I mean, one time I remember thinking maybe I should kind of keep my laptop out of the way of the aisle because I was looking at a site called Amputee Love. Now this is, <laughs> I know, but this is a for work, for work, obviously. I mean, obviously, the thing is, I mean, I've seen men watch porn on the train yeah, and I've told them, I've told them, stop watching that porn. Yeah. And they've been doing this because they want to watch porn. They like it. They get off with it. And many of them get off with watching it in front of women, particularly young women who they want to sexually harass. But I was looking at amputee love because I was writing a piece about men and their hideousness. Paraphilias. <laughs> and how they go from, you know, wanting to look at pictures of people blown up in war zones where they've lost a limb and toss off to that image through to trying to get private surgery to have one of their own limbs removed so they can, you know, fantasise about the stump. I mean, this is really horrendous stuff. And I'm very sorry, listeners. I really am. Not all Why men. Not all, not all amputees, not all, not all amputees. fetishists. And the th the reason why I'm raising this is because I could have actually brought up several examples of me looking at hideous stuff about the rape and murder of women, about pornography, about snuff movies, all of which I write about, all of which I research, sometimes actually when I'm on a long train journey and trying to drown out the noise of men eating crisps, as you will know. That's so, a real problem. Yeah, but what if somebody had... To, Recognize well, me, photograph that, look at Bindle. Well, she has a fetish you're lucky for they didn't. You're lucky they didn't. I've got two things to say, which I'll try and keep short. One is whoever did this is a disgusting um sneak uh privacy invades invading stasi like twat. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Jesus Christ. And even worse, so let's just assume this person, I don't know if it's a woman or a man, um, is 12. Let's just assume that they're too young to know that this is terrible behavior and they are the real problem and they have exposed themselves incredibly by doing this, except of course they did it under um, a sock. But then Laurie Penny, for instance, major 
Guardianista type journalist, cultural commentator, under her own name goes on Twitter, um, gleefully uh, seizing upon this as evidence that um, gender critical women are all perverts or something and puts it on Twitter herself. And 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 that, I mean, you in she is colluding in the most, I mean, she just revealed herself as as the most corrupt um lickspittle dickhead mm-hmm. by doing right. that. It's so debased. So debased. And I mean, and the other thing, which applies to both of these people and anyone else who kind of put that forward as kind of evidence of something you prudes you fucking prudes you go on about all the time about us being sex negative um but you're the ones that have got the problem with sex clearly i mean like it's like you're tittering behind your pearls or whatever i don't know what the metaphor is but they just reveal themselves to be absolutely i don't know like i say debased people by putting this forward and it's a sign of how shit our culture is that the first reaction of most people wasn't oh my god you um you're you know you have totally invaded her privacy by mm-hmm. doing that you sneaky spying little yes sneak spineless sneak class sneak that's what you yes. are like from absolutely right book. and and the other thing you know uh, i mean about laurie penny which i think is really pertinent to this is that she was or they were the one because of course there's pronouns are they well laurie penny was the one who during the we spa saga do you all remember that in los angeles there was a situation which we've seen in many places where they've got self-id and even where they haven't for trans people where there was a man um naked with an erect penis mincing around the women's section of this spa that has self-id in other words men are allowed to identify as women and be in the women's section of the spa and a woman complained that her daughter had been around and seeing witnessing this and of course there was as there should have been in my view a massive hoo-ha about it and there were feminists who were saying this is the result we've been warning you this is what self-id means there were also the right-wing proud boys capitalizing uh, on it as they do coming down there shouting um all about perverts and you know, being very transphobic and offensive. And then, of course, there were the Laurie Penny types who were there, say, including reporters for The Guardian, saying this is just transphobia. Not allowing a trans woman in the women's section is transphobia. And then lying about her exposing her erect penis to a child is transphobia. Now, it all turned mm. out further down the line, actually, that this man who did expose his penis was a registered sex offender. He was a convicted sex offender. And he was picked Mm. up for something else, some other misdemeanor later on. The Guardian never, ever corrected their original report, which was that this is all just transphobia and it was all lies made up by the likes of us. And Laurie Penny tweeted in support of that original Guardian piece and said, somebody, I think one of uh, some feminists said, what would you do if your daughter was in a spa and saw a man's erect penis? in the women's section. And she said, I don't have a daughter, so I don't know. I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something like, I would tell her it's rude to stare at other people's genitals unless you have their permission. How (laughs) grotesque. I mean, how utterly, utterly grotesque is that? Yeah, it's very rude to stare at someone's genitals, but it's perfectly okay to take pictures of someone's private screen and put them all over the internet. 
And that's Laurie Penny. But, you know, I'm sorry for her, her career's failing, but, you know, there you go. But look, as I say, Helen is our friend, but it's not just about this. It's not just about... Oh, it's, it's, it's actually, it's a principle of the thing. And, I mean, it has actually made me think now, because, you know, you and I are recognisable, just as Helen Joyce is and many of us. I think that I'm going to have to um, be very circumspect as to what I research on yeah. trains. From now on, I'm only going to do my food and wine and restaurant pieces when I'm on I'm train. going to have to stop reading all that lesbian erotic fiction on the way into London. <laughs> Why don't you start so, writing it? Start writing it. Oh, no, I'm going to have to start, <laughs> stop writing it as well. <laughs> so we have an article in the Cambridge News this week about um, remembering... Cambridge lesbian line from the 1970s it's the 19 um it's a it's a piece that's looking back on a phone line that uh, used to be run in Cambridgeshire run by five women um in 1979 called the Cambridge lesbian line and obviously this was not the only lesbian line at the time there were quite a few of them and um it would offer advice information and details of social events uh and it was active for three hours every friday evening um and it was a feminist backed endeavor as it were it came from a woman's group who were already discussing feminist literature so i just thought that's um it's nice to think about that and i'm sure you've got some anecdotes about lesbian lines um but generally speaking yeah. like what's happened to that sort of uh that kind of enterprise now and do we still need would we would we need it could we bring it back even I don't know I I think so I think we could it would be a very different endeavor but I think it would add something to the mix we have dating sites which are very different this is about you know wanting to meet women for sexual or romantic or both encounters lesbian line was much more than that it was about meeting lesbians meeting other feminists meeting women if you were a lesbian that you could hang out with and feel comfortable with and in fact I was one of the women that set up the Leeds lesbian line in 1982 we started in May 1982 so I was a 20 year old green round the gills I'd met an older lesbian feminist at some work placement I was doing in those days when you were getting unemployment benefit um, you had to go on some absolutely horrendous course to learn how to be a photographer or something. And I anyway, I ended up meeting Leslie through that route. And she said, you know what we've got to do? We've got to set up a lesbian line. And I had never heard of them. And she was talking about the Cambridge lesbian line and others. And in fact, what was dominant in the scene at the time was gay switchboard, which I'm sure, you know, many have heard about. And this was, I mean, there were women volunteering on Gay Switchboard and it was a whole bank of, of phones, a whole bank of volunteers, mainly men, some lesbians who would take calls from, again, mainly men, but the occasional lesbian who would say, where can we go for a drink and meet others? Where can mm -hmm. I meet, uh, you know, a, a potential girlfriend? Where is there um, a lesbian, you know, hockey club, bird watching, walking? And um, we decided that because Gay Switchboard was so focused on gay men and their sexual um, and drinking culture, that mm. we would actually start our own. So we could advertise our own sexual and drinking culture. <laughs> so, we... <laughs> so it was a way of picking women up, basically. <laughs> it, but it was, it was definitely a way of meeting potential sexual and romantic partners, but it was also a way to sit and talk to women 
who were like-minded and who would understand when you said things like, I've actually felt very, very depressed or even suicidal at the idea that I am this freak and that I'll never fit into polite society. And I've been disowned by my family and I've had my children taken away from me by an abusive ex and I hate myself. And honestly, sometimes women would start from that. So we had on Tuesday evenings, we had a three hour shift where two of us would volunteer to be in this dank basement that was also the Leeds gay switchboard. We borrowed a night off the men, basically. That's how we did it. Mm-hmm. And we would tell them, um, come down to the upstairs fortnightly disco in this pub called The Dock Green, which was as rough as a badger's crotch. And occasionally, and you would always dread these calls, but they were always great if they went the right way. You would get women saying, I don't know what to do. I just want to end it all. I don't know what to do. I can't get out of bed. I'm so depressed. And then you'd get the other side, which was, yeah, I want to meet some bird, right? And, you know, I've just been um, chucked over by my current squeeze and basically I'm back on the market. So you would have all of that. You'd have that whole range. And it was it was a really important thing to be able to do. And sometimes I didn't know what to say. And and sometimes it was just a matter of listening to the women as they talked. But what was brilliant yeah. was when you went to the, you got to the Dot Green and also that this fortnightly disco at the Dot Green meant that we could charge a little bit of entrance money. And that that is what funded our phone line. Right. And you would see the women come in and you would put a voice to a face because you'd mm-hmm. been talking to her for three weeks or six weeks or however long. Right. And all of a sudden there she was having a good time. Wow. That's brilliant. If you think that, um, no doubt, you know, the sort of if people think about it, they probably think, oh, well, the internet has replaced all this now. We don't need um, phone lines anymore because you can just go online and find out what you need or you can chat uh, online. But I do think what obviously is missed out in that story is the human connection, um, the voice for a start, and just kind of building up a relationship with somebody else, even if it's a kind of, well, it's obviously a professional relationship, let's hope. I'm sure you weren't like profiting personally out of this. I was very proper. Can't say the same for everyone, but I'm not mentioning any names. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's just sad that we don't have like something that, that kind of direct and personal anymore. I mean, I'm, I know there are phone lines, there's still phone lines, but I don't think there are any dedicated lesbian lines anymore. Is that right? That's right. And it is something that I think could work today. Certainly it would be a way for women to connect to a wider community and it not just being, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to connect to meet a sexual partner, but not just about that. It could be that you're looking for a friendship group, you're looking for friends, you're looking for someone to go, as I say, bird watching or walking with. You're just looking for someone to talk to. And mm-hmm. we forget how isolated some lesbians are. And I think particularly with online dating, that that because there are so few bars anymore, so few physical spaces, actually just having a chat on the phone can be great fun. And I think connecting to those events where there's a purpose to it, as I say, we were fundraising to keep the line going and to advertise the line, all of which cost money, was great. And for some reason, towards the end of the evening at those discos where you'd have free Nelson Mandela and I Will Survive and God Knows What playing, 
at least 50% of the women dancing would take off their tops. Right. And, and their bras, if they were wearing a bra. 50%? Which, at least 50%. And I was not, I'm here to tell you, one of those 50%. Was Harriet? It, well, <laughs> Harriet wasn't actually... Harriet and I didn't know each other back in those early days. This was in the early 80s. Um, okay. I knew of her, but she was she was elsewhere with, right. with someone else. And it was the Leeds women, although they'd come from Bradford and Hebden Bridge and Todmorden and all of those hotspots where lesbians resided. And so it was always a really great night. And occasionally... Oh, sorry, so what was the... Yeah, go on, go on. No, no, just occasionally the men from the pub downstairs would say something like, you know, you, you would hear them when you went to the bathroom. Oh, my God. John, have you seen? There's about 200 <laughs> women up there on their own. And one of us would point out to them that you can't be on your own if you're with another 199 women. But well, yeah. obviously they're meant women only. But did this guy know that half of them had their tops off? Well, no. I mean, that was definitely towards the end of the night when they probably got their carry out, you know, party packs of of um, Tetley's um, beer to take home. Right. And, so can you, know, you we had explain, a... though, what's the, is this part of like the, but um bra burning uh take off the shackles of patriarchy yeah. thing yeah what? i think so i think so it was that if you're in a club or a disco or or a bar or whatever with men it's the last thing you're going to do right i'm trying to get in the mind of this <laughs> if it, it i'm never anywhere been. at all in public it's the last thing i'm gonna tell choose. me about it but you see the green and women all did this the green and women would you know would turn up and coach loads to various clubs and bars in London and they'd all have their tops off. And it was about, I suppose, freedom to just, you know, be in your body. Early on. Well, it was about freedom to be in your body without being sexually objectified. But I mean, the amount of women trapping off with their yes, bras exactly. off. But I mean, you're in a lesbian bar, you're a lesbian or you're in a lesbian uh, club night, you're a lesbian. Of course, the, you're going to be sexually objectified. That's our bloody point. Well, look, I mean, I mean, we can argue about that, but it, it was it was never a comfortable moment for me when those tops came off. Uh, I would I would sit counting. <laughs> I would sit on the desk counting the takings. Oh, look, we've made fifty seven pounds fifty. <laughs> I imagine like that if you're dancing like, you know, if, if there's a high tempo, <laughs> high tempo dance um, piece of music on the on the. Uh, Turntables. You, you, then, you uh... could actually, you could be in for an injury if you walked the wrong way with a, a flying breast slapping you in the head as you walk past to go to for your half pint of cider. And of course, the other thing that would that would happen at those events, um, all because of lesbian lines. So this is the, the great offshoot of it, is that <laughs> w women would actually fashion their direct action um, <laughs> on the Sorry. night that we would have. <laughs> <laughs> You've made me cough. Right, carry on. So, <laughs> some of the women would plan their direct action, by which I mean spray painting, you know, porn is violence against women, or I don't know, lesbians are great. Whatever it's direct concrete action. sex shop toilets I've heard occasionally happened. That, that kind of thing, although obviously mm -hmm. none of us know anything about that. No, but the, that. The, the women would plan those actions for the night at the Dock Green. So they would turn up at seven o'clock, um, be seen by everyone, go off, do their illegal direct action, come back, and they'd been there all along. 
What do you mean, officer? No, Sandra wasn't at all missing tonight. She's been standing by that bar, sipping on her pint of Tetley's and just, you know, watching the flying breasts on the dance floor. <laughs> so you all you all basically provided each other with alibis as well as... Uh... It was, let's just say that it was a very good night for all kinds yeah, of Yeah, it reasons. sounds absolutely brilliant. Somebody should write this. I mean, I'm presuming it has been written up, but it should be written in a comic fashion. Uh, well, there's no other way of writing it. No, really. is... <laughs> <laughs> so there's been an article in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, which I did find behind um, in front of a paywall, but they've now taken it down. So you'll just have to take my word for it unless you're a subscriber to the Sydney Morning Herald. But um, it's about someone's found researchers have looked into the data about lesbian weddings versus gay male weddings since same-sex marriage came in in Australia in 2018 and they have discovered that I think you can probably predict this perhaps that more lesbians got married than gay men I think by a factor of three to two Mm -hmm. since 2018 and more lesbians have got divorced which actually maybe just follows from the first fact Mm. I don't know maybe that wherever you've got um, a certain proportion of people getting married, married, you will have a certain proportion of them getting divorced. So if the mm-hmm. proportion is bigger, then the second will be as well. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting, and I and I think I think I'm right in saying that in the UK it's the same, and it I don't know if it's the same in the states. So lesbians get married quicker, um, and in more in greater numbers than gay men. I don't. They didn't say in this article what the comparison. I don't think they said what the comparison was with heterosexual women um, or men, uh, but uh, they also get divorced um, in greater numbers too. Mm. So, discuss. Well, I remember when civil partnerships came in in 2006 and my postbox was full of invites from all these lesbians wanting Mm. to, I mean, it wasn't marriage as in the kind of heterosexual marriage that came later, but it was very much, we want a big wedding. We've been denied it so long. We want this huge wedding, this huge celebration. And it was the full Megilla. It was, you know, the matching wedding dresses or the butch suit in the wedding dress. It was the kind of big party. It was, you know, speeches and bridesmaids and God knows what. And I remember going to one in Liverpool, um, which was a huge affair, exactly of that nature. And it was indistinguishable from a kind of heterosexual wedding, except for there were two women at the aisle. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because it's me, um, I was fairly critical of this. And just thought, Are you oh, friends with them before you go on? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and fr- friends with, I mean, I, I did go to that particular one, despite me turning down all the other invitations, graciously, of course, and sending them a thank you card, because this was... You know, one of the couple was and still is a particularly close friend and mm. I'm sure I've done lots of things that she might not approve of or want to be there while I'm doing it but mm. I just thought well for God's sake you know as pa- Paula Ettelbrick I think that's her name she was a, a, a American lesbian feminist lawyer who looked at different legal um, who looked at ways in which lesbian families lesbian and gay families could be constructed without going down that kind of heterosexual normative route and Mm. she said um about marriage 
who somebody had said to her, this is a great institution. And she said, it's not that I don't like institutions. I just don't like want to live in one. And it, it was that whole kind of scene of how we'd been able to critique and sometimes even pour scorn on heterosexual couples who did that whole kind of let's get engaged and let's do it with a view of some Italian Riviera and then let's get married and let's have these particular speeches and then let's go on honeymoon and it just felt very kind of formulaic and like we've been denied it so long that it was something that we felt was a good thing because we hadn't been allowed to do it and you know I, I'm I'm probably wrong I usually am about these things but it very I'll much tell you why you're wrong so don't worry no that's <laughs> I'm sure you are um and then of course I think was it in 2013 lots of lesbian couples that I know of had converted their civil partnership to an actual marriage on par with heterosexual yeah. marriage it was a bumper year for like wedding planners because they get right. got to do it twice with the same couples that's right um yeah I think I'm <clears throat> I have mixed feelings about what you just said um because I do uh, I think if you'd asked me like 15 years ago I would have agreed with you that you know marriage is a heteronormative ex institution and uh why should lesbians or gay men try and mimic it um and I what I think now is first of all there's this I do think there's um the importance of ritual and in people's lives and I think that the the wedding ceremony provides a kind of structure that we're familiar with that is a kind of ritual and it is a beautiful ritual um so why you know I don't yes you, we could create our own rituals but and and many people have tried you know to like completely change the 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 traditional way of doing things but then it doesn't because it's not ritual anymore and it, um I like the idea of sort of tapping into a tradition that goes back at least centuries um I don't see anything wrong generally with um lesbians and gays trying to fit into wider society I actually and that is really comes from seeing the opposite you know how it is true that quite a lot of LGBT activists have tried to destroy all these things and not they haven't put anything better in their place so I, I'm not really utopian when it comes to that sort of thing mm. at the same time and this is where I'm more in agreement with you or at least more ambivalent what I think is under recognized is how difficult it is for same-sex couples to fit into these structures whether it's marriage whether it's pregnancy whether it's in the case of lesbians having babies you know you can try and be a bit like a man and a woman having a baby getting married, having a baby, living a, a, a sort of normal life, but you're not. Mm. <laughs> the thing is, you're not like that. There are differences. You're two women and that makes a difference. And one of you is usually not biologically related to the child and that makes mm -hmm. a difference. Um, I mean, this isn't strictly about marriage, but it's about the whole kind of shebang. And I, I do think that we don't talk enough about the differences. We pretend they don't exist in some cases. Um, we pretend that it's bigotry to say that there are any differences and that's nonsense there are clearly important differences that just come out of who we are um I yeah. mean we won't fit into that sort of shaped hole that's provided for us by society so yeah I'm my feelings are mixed well I agree with you on that um the rituals I understand what you're saying 
but I think in particular, it's about this insistence that you live a fiction and pretend that, in fact, as you say, you know, a baby between two women is biologically related to the pair of you. Um, just, I don't see why it has to be that way to parent a child. You know, we have found oh, ways to 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 raise children and to live in families as same-sex couples and as lesbians in particular for a long time. Like, it seems like that there's two positions that are offered to you. Blow everything up, blow all the heteronormative institutions up, reject everything, do it your own way, constantly be like um, forging some new vision of how the family should be and it can't be heteronormative and it can't be traditional. Or fit in, pretend everything's exactly the same. Mm. And as usual, that's far too stark a binary. And really, we've got to cope with the fact that we are both, you know, not exactly the same, but not exactly different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not completely yeah. different. I think that's fair. And I used to be much more of the kind of blow everything up and never kind of go down the normative route. And not only is it impossible, but it's also quite unpleasant, really, if you're constantly putting yourself on the outside mm. when we're already forced on the outside by those that don't like us. Fewer and fewer people, of course, mm. um, would would behave in, in that way towards us. But it's still something that is very uncomfortable for those women and men that don't have the kind of protection of a nice house in a nice area where they're not going to be queer bashed or shouted at when they leave. Mm. So I, I think I, it's quite a, I hate to kind of use this term, but I'm going to anyway, it's quite a luxury belief in a way to think that you can always be on the outside when for many people, that's a very dangerous yeah. place to be. Yeah. That's, that's also true. You can pretend you're on the outside for like um, pats on social media and stuff and oh, aren't you the outsider, but actually, that's not something you can really control. And when you genuinely are an outsider, it's terrible. Um, yeah, but this none of this really gets the heart of why lesers get married so quickly. Well, I mean, look, it's, a woman, it's a woman thing, isn't it? And the last thing that I want to do is to sound um, like I buy into any of the kind of biological determinism. But let's be honest here. Um, Women are more likely to want to Let's be honest, they're programmed to get married. <laughs> <laughs> and of that course, was joke. That was joke, everybody. That and was of course, joke. to stay married come what may. No, I mean mm. women women are more likely to to want to commit to that kind of um lifelong happy ever after happy ever after well, relationship. And it's also for, for stability if you want to have children mm -hmm. as a woman. Um it's obviously optimal to have someone to do it with you and to put kind of structures in place around that to make it a stable family environment. And women are good at that stuff. And many women rush into this. And I think because something was denied us for all that time, forever, all mm -hmm. of a sudden it was available to us. And many women rushed into this because it was almost like being let, you know, um, let go in a sweet shop when you've been denied oh. sugar all your life and you've been told instead yeah. to drink apple juice and then all of a sudden uh, the world was your oyster and of course you know many of those women found after the honeymoon and the excitement had died down and all of the presents were opened and no one had got them a decent two-tiered air fryer that life wasn't quite as idyllic as they had thought and they were quite bored with each other and one of them had an affair and the other one just 
yeah be asked with it and they decided to get divorced because when heterosexual women get divorced from men who they are unhappy with it can be a little bit trickier than when two women get divorced and I know that you don't like me bashing straight men here Kathleen and we might have this row again but I think that it's less likely although we know lesbians take seven years to split up that there will be the same level of pressure on women to stay within that relationship just a guess I think it's men who leave mostly isn't it so I don't know but anyway um I was going to say sort of elaborating on what you just said I think you're right that in a way this introduction of civil partnership and then um, marriage it created a kind of false economy um, for marriage because uh, normally the trajectory if you had all those um, options available from the start then you know you you meet someone you fall in love you're with them for not that long before you get engaged and then you get married shortly afterwards and it's sort of all going on the up there's a kind of like a narrative arc that's going towards uh, a crescendo and then you have children and then uh, gradually maybe you get a bit bored with each other but it happens over time but for um for lesbians who and for gay men presumably but lesbians particularly just had been with each other for ages and then suddenly the opportunity arose mm. you're not really doing it for necessarily the same reasons as you would have mm -hmm. done in the normal way you're doing it because you can and because it's fun to like think about dresses and placeholders and bouquets or whatever it is and because it gives you a shot of adrenaline actually it gives you something new and interesting to do together mm. um and that's different um I mean, I've always thought that like couples that have been to the heterosexual ones have been together for ages and ages and ages, like years, and then suddenly they get engaged. I think, oh, there's something wrong with that relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, maybe one of them's about to die or something, but no, or um, they're looking for something to to like give them a boost of energy because they're bored. Or that's, that, they, that's they my... just, yeah. Or, or they do it because of financial reasons and they realise that, there might be a way around paying so much inheritance yeah. tax. Well, there is that. Or it's easier than doing a will. That's that's purely rational. Call me if cynical. you're doing it, some kind of romantic um, tag attached, at least in theory, then I think it's a bit dodgy if you take mm -hmm. years, years and years to get around to it, which is obviously a vast generalisation, which will have many exceptions and could be complete bollocks. And speaking of absolute bollocks, Kathleen, do we have a sexual identity of the week? We do. Um, and this is a special one. This is, I don't know if this counts as a sexual identity or a gender identity, but anyway, the um, the term is gender apathetic. <laughs> um, and I found this in a medical health website. So this is not satire. Gender apathetic describes someone who doesn't strongly identify with any gender or with any gender labels. Some gender apathetic people also use terms that indicate their relationship with the sex or gender assigned to them at birth, such as cis apathetic or trans apathetic. What? Most others don't. I do not assume. I mean, honestly, I can't believe this because as you were reading that gender apathetic I thought that's me I well, don't are. identify I, I, with a gender I am gender apathetic I am cis apathetic and I am trans <laughs> <laughs> I am all of those things so finally do we not... found 
applies, applies to us. We fit this. Do not assume that if you are cis gender apathetic, that you're not also transgender apathetic. Well, this is surely not a binary. You can be, oh no, I see. Oh no, hang on, I've understood. I think so. Cis apathetic is cis people who are, no, no, hang on, hang on. I have to go back. Is cis apathetic people, sorry. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so cis apathetic apparently is cis people who are gender apathetic. <laughs> hang on a minute, Kat. Hang on, hang on. Apathetic is trans people, but I really think they need a rebrand there because if you go around going, hi, I'm trans apathetic, people are not going to understand that it doesn't mean that you're not apathetic to trans. Oh, and I, I've got another bit of information, sorry. Generally, people who are gender apathetic display an attitude of flexibility, openness, and not caring about how gender identity or presentation is perceived and labelled by others. Oh, my God. So hang on a second. The word cis, which clearly I reject, is mm. supposed to mean someone who isn't trans. This is what we're told all the time. Now, mm. if you're saying I'm cis apathetic, gender apathetic, isn't mm. that a contradiction in terms? Because yeah. oh, or does no, everyone have a gender point. identity? Are you are you saying that, and I think you're right, that if you were genuinely gender apathetic, you would yes. never use the word cis or trans of, because of you don't care. Of course. Right. Because if, if you and I Paradox. are, right, so if we are apathetic. <laughs> <laughs> if. <laughs> right. <laughs> then, we then we reject both the term cis and trans. Yeah, exactly. So there's, it, it, in a stunning turn of events, there's a paradox deep in the heart of one of these definitions. However, I also think that this gives us a, a get out clause. So earlier on, I misgendered Laurie Penny. Yes, you I did. said she, her when it should have been they, them. Mm -hmm. But I now can say I'm, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I'm not sorry. I'm gender apathetic. That's my brand. So Could you actually I'm not say pronouns? Well, I could say, as a gender apathetic person, mm. I refuse to accept your gender identity or your pronouns. But I am, I identify as gender apathetic. That's my gender identity. Exactly. So now when you're doing a pronoun round, when you're forced to do it at work, not that we ever are in the workplaces where makers do this, but if you, dear listeners, are in that situation... When it gets to you, say, I'm sorry, I'm gender apathetic, and then show them the website. The definition. That's well, you could, you could actually say, just to add a little bit of frisson, you could say, I identify as gender apathetic. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. Job done. And then nobody better quiz you too hard on the internal contradictions of um, that being a gender identity in itself. That's the lot for today and uh, see you all next week. See you next week. Bye, Kathleen. Bye.